Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to fellowship around your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we examine your word and see what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there come men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho went to Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come in unto you, which are entered into your house, for they come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they came. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I I know not. Pursue after them quickly, and you might overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of her house and hid them under the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan and to the fords. And as soon as they were which pursued after them were gone, she, they shut the gate. So we're going to stop there at the paragraph and kind of discuss a little bit here. Uh, we have a very interesting story, and I kind of find it amazing, after the experience 40 years earlier, that Joshua sent any spies into the land. Uh, after having 12 spies go in and 10 of them lead them into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it surprises me that he sent two people in. I'm sure he handpicked these spies to be very godly men, that they would be people who would seek after God. But he sends two men to go search out the land. Now, he has no problem with the land. I guess maybe he wants to make sure it hasn't changed in 40 years. Uh, But I think he's also looking for some very specific information about Jericho, because that's the first city they're going to come across when they enter the promised land. And it says that these guys went in and they went into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now for all of those that are reading a King, New King James or an NIV, it will tell you innkeeper here. That is not correct. <laughs> this word is translated 93 times in the scripture and every time it's translated harlot. Yeah, well it is. It is what it is. Mine says prostitute. Prostitute. Well, I can deal with prostitute. I, I can deal with prostitute, but I know the newer versions are trying to soften her reputation because it kind of makes you wonder in the first place, what are the two spies doing in a prostitute's house in the first place? Uh, so, you know, you kind of think about this, and when you think about what they're, and that's why they're trying to soften it. They're trying to make these guys look better in and of themselves, and the fact that Rahab is going to end up in the line of Jesus as one of his great, great, great ancestors. So they're trying to make it, no, this wasn't a harlot that got in there. It was, uh, she was a businesswoman with, you know, keeping it in. No, the word literally is harlot. And it goes to show God's grace. God's grace that he could take the worst people and say, I'm going to use you in in a special way. And this is, if you look at the line of Jesus, he's got Tamar in there who deceived Judah and slept with her father-in-law because he just wouldn't give her his, the son that he was supposed to give to 
have seed for his first son, so she deceived him and slept with him, had a son. Uh, you got Tamar in there. You've got Rahab in there. We have all these. You got Ruth, the Moabitess, in there. You know, you've got all these people that, if you looked at them, you'd say, "How are these people in the line of Jesus? You know, the Messiah, God's grace." Same reason any of us can do anything for God, God's grace. None of us deserve anything good from God, because we are sinners. And because of his grace, God uses us. God does things because of his wonderful grace. And Rahab is going to be used. And we're going to see the story of how she gets into that whole line. But uh, she has these people. She knows who they are. And the king of Jericho comes and says, give us the people that came into your, came into your place. We know they came to you. So he had been watching these people. They're supposed to be spying. They're supposed to be wandering around secretively. And they've been found out. They know who they are. Maybe it was by their voice. Maybe they watched them from the time they crossed the Jordan. We don't. It doesn't go on to tell us how they knew these guys were there. Could be their voice. Could be their accents. And Rahab does something that's kind of an interesting thing. She hides the men up, up on the roof. And she tells the king that they left the city already. She lies to the king. This puts us into a very big dilemma. Because she's going to get blessed by God for having lied to the king. All right? Now, I want to be careful how I say that. She's not being blessed because she lied to the king. She's being blessed because she honored God. All right. What she did was wrong. Lying to the king was wrong. Now God used it just as he uses everything that we do. Even when we do something wrong, God will use it. There will be consequences for our misdeeds, but God will use what we do, and he will turn it for, for good. Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good according to the purposes of God for those who are called according to Christ Jesus. So all things work together for good, and he works this together. And this goes to a point that's very important for us when we read the scriptures. Just because the Bible says something or relays the story of something does not mean God approves of the action. Okay, Just because God said she lied and, she, and good things happened to her does not mean that God says her lie was good. All right? And I just want to make sure we understand that. It's never good to disobey God. Now, God can make things good happen of it, and he can make things that will be a blessing, but it's not because of the <laughs> disobedience. It's in spite of the disobedience. God loves us. He cares for us. Jesus died for our sin, and he covers the sin. And this is what's important. And I, I always bring this up because this is one of those big places that people go where they'll go, well, look at that. She lied to an enemy. Well, these weren't, they weren't even, the king of Jericho wasn't her enemy. It was her king. Okay, she's switching sides. She's basically being a traitor to Jericho. But that doesn't mean that she had the right to be able to do what she did. And I just want to bring this up because people will say, well, you know, well, good happened, so it must have been good. No, God used it in spite of. And... You know, Annie's favorite story, the hiding place. You know, 
they kept a lot of things hidden, but by the same token, they were very upfront on what they were doing. If they told pe people that directly asked them, they would tell them, yes, we're hiding Jews. God just didn't allow them to have that question asked most of the time. Uh, so we want to be able to understand God does not approve of anything that he says is not true. And that is in lying, uh, fornication, adultery, any of these things that are going on, God does not approve. It's sin, and he's going to judge sin. And so we see here Rahab lies to the king and says, uh, well, king, they, they were here. I didn't know who they were, and they left. They went out the gate. They went out the gate just as it was closing. And you've got to think about this. This was back in a time when the cities closed their gates at dusk. Nobody could come in and out of the gates without announcing who they were and all of that. They'd locked the gates, they closed them up, and if you were inside the city when the gates were closed, you were inside the city until the next morning. If you were outside the city, unless you were on king's business, you were outside the city until the, until the next morning when they opened up the gates. And so here she is, she's saying, uh, King, uh, they, they slipped out the gates just before you locked the gates. If you hurry up, you can go catch them. You know, and uh, it says that they pursued them. And this word for pursue is very interesting in the Hebrew. It literally means to follow alongside. Or another definition of was to dog them. Okay? They were, they were following them everywhere they went. Everything they were. They were supposed to pursue and find these guys. And they were trying to catch up with them. They went out the gates just before we got got there and they're going, we're going to go catch them. We're going to go catch them. And he says, go pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. They just left, king. You just missed them. You just missed them. Go catch them. You'll be on horses. You'll be, your, your guys will be able to outrun them. You can catch them. But she says she had put them on the roof and put them under the stalks of flax. Uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting. These guys put their faith in somebody that really they had no reason to be able to put their faith in. They had a lot of faith in that she was going to do what something good for them. Because all, you know, she had them on the roof. She could have told her, hey, yeah, king, they're up on the roof. Go get them. Yeah, those spies, they're, they're, I, I hit them on the roof. You can go get them. They, they think I was on their side. I don't know what it was that made them believe her. I'm not sure that I would have believed her. You know, why don't you go up on the roof? There's no way off the roof, but you go up on the roof and I'll, and I, and I'll protect you. It makes not, doesn't make a lot of sense. I've always wondered about this story. And many times when I've read this story, it's like, wow, what faithfulness, what trust. Trust on Rahab's side that they're going to be protective of her when they come in. Trust on their side that she's not going to turn them in. Because this is something that is just a, unbelievable that there was this much trust going on. And she puts him up on the roof. And just think, if you know anything about trying to get away from somebody, the last place you want to be is on the roof of a building. Let's get, let's get up where there's only the staircase down and we can't get away. Instead of the ground floor where you could get out at least some windows. And she takes him up to a very indefensible place. These guys are either totally militarily dumb or very trusting, whatever it was that made her made them trust her. Spirit of God, whatever it was, they trusted her. I was going to say, it's possible they trusted God, and not necessarily trusted her, but trusted 
trusted God, trusted God in her, whatever it might be. There may have been some conversation long before this that we're not privy to, because she's going to tell them later on, you know, I'm, I'm going to trust you and I ask you to protect me when you come in. Uh, we're going to see that she's already looking to be one of, the, one of their believers because we watch what she says. So there may have been long conversation before this where she's talking to them about God and, and how much she's fallen in love with their God and everything. So there may have been something that causes this trust. Uh, this is something we have to be careful of because, again, the Bible doesn't tell us every word of every situation. It just tells us bits and pieces of it. It tells us what we need to know. They went there, she hid them, and they're going to protect her. And that's, that's what we need to know, and that's what they tell us. And it says when the, when the king heard that, his men went out to go chase after these guys. And at, love, at the very end of this, they went out and they shut the gate. Basically, they were saying, okay, Rahab, if you've lied to us and they're still with you, when we get back, the gate's shut. You're not, you're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. We're going to come back in, and if, you, if they're still in the city, we're going to find them. If we make it out and, they, and don't find them, you know, we're going to be watching that gate. The day, if they go out the gate in the morning, Rahab, you're in trouble. Basically, is what they're saying to her. And we see this whole interplay going on. A lot of faith going on. A lot of, lot of courage going on. And this is the, the statement in this book that we've had so many times. Be strong and of good courage is the statement that we're going to read over and over. People are to be strong and of good courage because God has a plan. He's got something that he wants to work out for them. And here we see these guys are being strong and of good courage. They're trusting somebody who is the enemy to, to protect them. And this is a kind of a bizarre thing when, I th when you think about it. All right, verse 8. And before they were laid down, she came up to them upon the roof, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and your terror is fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how God dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sidon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. And therefore I pray you, swear unto me now by the, by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you also will show kindness to, unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and be, deliver us our lives from death. So we're going to stop there. Rahab has kind of ulterior motives on this, as we're seeing on this discussion. She is there before they get ready to go to sleep. She goes up and she goes to talk to them. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. What faith from a Gentile? What faith from a heathen? We know that your God has given you this land, or I know in this case. I know that you're going to be given this land. Have you ever talked to somebody who wasn't a Christian and seen more faith in some of them than you have with some Christians sometimes? It's happened to me. I've talked to a non-Christian and it seems like they believe God more than the Christian does. And they're right there and I'm going, you're ready to know God, aren't you? And usually they're ready to know God. If they've got that much faith, they're ready 
to have an experience with God, to admit that they're a sinner, that they deserve punishment, and to come to God and accept Jesus Christ and repent. This is where Rahab's at. She's right there. She is right there to, to accept God. Later on, we're going to find out that she marries a man named Salome. Okay, his, his name is Salome. They give birth to Boaz. You know who Boaz is? He's the redeem, kinsman redeemer that marries Ruth. Boaz and Ruth give birth to Jesse. Jesse gives birth to David. What a precious line she gets, gets into because David is King David who then is the, where Jesus comes out of the line of, of David, root and offspring of David. What a blessing she's going to have because of her deciding to follow the God of Israel. And she says, we know that you, this land is yours. And I love this. And the terror, and your terror has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. He goes, we know what your God did to Egypt. We know what he did to the Red Sea. We know what he did, what you guys did to the Amorite kings and Og and Sion. And we are terrified. Isn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful to know that the enemy is terrified? And they're going to take this back to Jer Joshua. Joshua, they're, they're scared to death of us. It says, and all the people do faint, melt away. They have no strength, no courage, no breath. They're, they're in no shape to fight. Their reputation preceded them. Their rep the, the reputation of God preceded them. God, yeah, the reputation of God yeah, The reputation for God precedes them, and people are afraid. They are very worried that this is going to be no hope for them. And, you know, it's kind of wonderful when you think about this. What is God's testimony in your life? When people look at you, do they see a God that is powerful, a God that is victorious? Or do they see some wimpy, wimpy relationship that has no, no terror, no fear? Our relationship with God should be so strong that people look at it and say, now that's what a Christian is supposed to live like. That person's got courage. That person's got something that's to be afraid of and it says the people faint why and she goes because we have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea now remember this is 40 to 41 years after the event and they're still talking about the Red Sea being parted you know, 40 to 41 years and it's not just the Jews talking about it it's their enemy. Because this is a big deal. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing when you read these scholars who want to tell you the Red Sea never parted. You know, well, no, it didn't part. You know, they, some other miracle happened. You know. Rahab, a foreigner, tells us that it parted. 41 years after it parted. Huh? You know, the, the story is right there. You know, and it's a miracle three and a half million people crossed from Egypt into Saudi Arabia on dry land yeah dry land and literally this word is dry bone dry and he says and when you came out of Egypt, you know, you, you, you crossed the Red Sea. 
very powerful testimony. And if she knows it, other people in the land know it. Okay, this is not something that is just quietly being hidden from people. This is, we know that your God has done something great. And you got to think about this. Drying up the Red Sea, even if it's at the shallow spot of 150 to 200 feet, okay, that's the shallow spot that they, we believe they crossed in. There's a little land bridge where it's shallow. Even if that's where it is, that's still a miracle to open the, the water, dry the land out. I don't know if any of you have ever been out at the beach or a lake and you've gone down 20 or 30 feet. There's not dry land on the bottom of that. It's very thick mud. It's not even sand out that, you know, if you get that deep of water. It's mud. They didn't cross around pulling their feet out of mud every step. They crossed on dry land. And it was known to the children of Canaan, the people of Canaan. They knew the miracle that God had done. You guys crossed out, you crossed this water, you crossed on dry land. We know it's impossible. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to walk between two walls of water 150 to 200 feet tall? You know, that would be kind of nerve-wracking in one sense. You know, who knows how wide it was? God put it 100, you know, about 3.5 million people through it in one night, so it wasn't a narrow pathway. It probably was a mile or two. So you barely saw the water on each side. If you were really nervous, you could walk down the center and, and not see the water hardly at all. If you were really adventurous, you might go over here and, wow, look at those fish inside that water. I don't know if they saw fish inside that water, but, you know, you know but you're looking into a wall of water. <laughs> you, know, you know, who knows what you saw? And they get to the other side, and this miracle is well known. This is not forgotten. This is not something that people forgot. It's like, wow, you know, their God is pretty powerful. He opened up the, the sea. Not just a, a river, not just a, a lake, a body of water that the ships <laughs> run in. The sharks are in, the, the whales are in, all the, all the big creatures are in, not just a little tiny lake. And she says, we know what your God did. We know how powerful your God is. And it says, and what you did to Og and Sion on the other side of the Jordan. We know that you've killed these two strong kings. We know that you've been victorious in your battles. All right. Very interesting thing because their, their testimony is going before them. God's testimony is going before them that he's going to be the one that fights for them. And people are shaking in their boots. Their knees are knocking. They're afraid to go to battle with it because they've never seen their gods split the ocean. They've never seen their gods even split the sea or a lake or even a puddle. <laughs> okay. They have not seen their gods do anything supernatural like this. And they're getting ready to face a God who can separate the sea, who's given them victory every place they've been. They may not know all about how they were fed and watered in the wilderness, but they also know they've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and they're still strong and alive. They haven't been dwindled down to nothing, which is what you would expect. So here, here she is, and you says, you, whom you utterly destroyed, and that means completely. And if you remember back in, in Numbers when we talked about this, they killed everything, everyone. 
of that tribe and those people. And in verse 11 says, And as soon as we had heard of these things, our hearts did melt. Neither was there any more courage in any man because of you and your God. He is the God of heaven and the earth beneath. What a confession from this Gentile woman. Okay? We're not told what she, who she worshipped before or anything about it, but she right now is saying, I recognize that you, are, you, are the God, that you serve the God of gods and the Lord of lords. There's nobody stronger than him in heaven. There's nobody stronger than him on earth. She did not add under the earth, but she could have. So she's going, you serve a God that is above everything. This is a powerful statement because I've met so many people who say they believe in Jesus that don't have this same understanding that she has. And he is the Almighty, the powerful one. There's nobody stronger than him. It says, now, she has a request, now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord God, since I have shown you this kindness, that you will show me kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Uh, so she's saying, I was kind to you. I protected you. I didn't turn you in. I want you to do something for me. And she uses the word token. Now, token doesn't mean much to us in our day and age necessarily. But in that day, in the medieval days, I'm going to go to medieval because I know it the best, a knight would oftentimes ride with a token of some maiden that he was trying to impress. He would be having the, you know, trying to court some maiden and she would give him a scarf or something and it would be called the token. And he would ride in her honor, uh, his token. He was fighting now for her. And sometimes it was even more strict. You know, he was fighting for her honor. If she was being accused of something, he would fight for her honor and he would wear her token into battle. Some scarf or a handkerchief or something. And, and she's saying, give me a token, something that will prove that you're going to be men of your word. And, you know, it's quite a statement that she's asking for. It's like, I'm going to trust you. I'm trusting you to do something that you're, because she knows they're in trouble. They, she knows that Jericho is the first major city in their path from where they've been camping. Remember, they're on the east side of the Jordan. When they cross the Jordan, pretty much the only thing in front of them is Jericho. And Jericho is a huge city. It's got a wall that they can ride three abreast on. You know, Jericho's not worried. You know, Jericho should not be worried about the children of Israel at all. They've got a wall that nobody can get into. They've, had, they've been watching them sitting out there for months, so they've had plenty of time to get food and water into the city. They don't have a great fear, and yet Rahab's saying, we're scared to death of you guys. Why? Because we have this big wall, but you guys just came through the middle of a sea. <laughs> we had a great big wall. You guys came through a sea. Maybe your God's able to take down our wall, basically is what she's saying. She probably has more faith than they do. Because they're not thinking that God's going to tear down a wall for them. I think this is great for them, too, because they're getting this idea, well, God, God did take us to the sea. And they're thinking of all the different battles. They're thinking about the time when the sun stood still for a day and so they could beat, their, beat the enemy. They're thinking about the time when the, rock, the hail fell down and killed more of the enemy than they killed. You know, and they're going, well, yeah, you know what? Maybe God can take this city for us. This is a faith-building thing. 
And it's an amazing thing when, when you get your faith built up by somebody who's not even claiming to be a Christian because they know what God can do. And so she says, I just want a token. And here's the token I want from you, that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver us from death. Now, this is a big request of the, of the spies. Because what is the commandment that, that the children of Israel have? Kill everybody in the promised land. Okay? The spies are going to take on a pretty big agreement. And it's an agreement that they do not have the authority to make. Okay? They do not have the authority to make an agreement with the enemy of this nature. They don't have an authority to give any agreement. They're not ambassadors. They're not, they're not, they're not even royalty in the, in, the, in the people. They are just two men that are spies being sent out to go examine the land. And they're going to make an agreement. They do not know how many brothers and sisters she has. Because okay? you read, just I'm asking you to save my, my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. And everybody that's in their, fa- in their household. For all he knows, the entire city of Jericho might be crammed into her house. Honestly, we don't know. We have no idea. They have no idea. There's no record of him saying, well, how big is your family? You know, how, how many people are we agreeing to not kill in your family? You know, because you notice that the brothers and sisters are plural. So she's talking about at least six people plus all their servants. At least. And it's probably much more. Uh, very big request that she's making. Very bold request. Because she also doesn't know do these guys have the authority and power to make this agreement. Are they even men of their word? Can I trust them? She's hidden them. They've trusted her. Now she is going to trust that they are men of their word when they say yes. This is a, I see so much faith in this chapter that's amazing. Faith from Rahab, faith from the, the spies. And we see this going on. And it says in verse 14, And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if, if you utter not our business, it, and it shall be when the Lord has given us this land, we will deal kindly and truly with you. Rahab, as long as you don't tell anybody about this, we'll, we'll honor this. Now, I have a problem with this because now she's going to go tell mom, dad, brother, sister, all of their people. You know, what faith does she have in her family not to utter this? It's pretty easy to keep a secret when you keep it locked up with just one or two people. She's involving at least six people in this secret, plus their whatever they have. How much chance is there that it's going to get out what Rahab's done? And understand, Rahab's not just in danger from the Israelites. If it gets out what she's doing and the agreement that she's made and the king hears about it, the king of Jericho. Uh, he's not going to be too happy with this agreement either. She'd be a traitor and she's going to be probably executed. 
So she has a great desire to make sure that her family keeps it secret. Uh, I've made an agreement to save our lives. You come into my house and stay here. She might not even told him why, but just get in my house. We're protected in my house. It's going to be a safe place. I know something you don't know. Come into my house and be protected. But don't dare go out. It could have been just that simple. Maybe she kept it that simple. Who knows? It doesn't tell us. But they tell her, as long as everybody is in your house and you don't tell anybody, we will honor this. What a statement they're making. They're talking by faith also because they don't know for sure that Jer Joshua, who's been commanded to kill everybody, is going to spare this woman and all of her family. Yeah. They might know the character of Jer Joshua because Joshua is a godly man. Joshua is, a, is very godly and he's going to probably say, okay, you made your word and we're going to find out that's exactly what he does. You, you gave your word, we will honor it. And a matter of fact, when the walls fall, when we get to that chapter, he'll say, you go in and, get, and, and take her people out. You go in and, and, and guide her out. And if they're with you, they're okay. And so Jer uh, Joshua is going to honor this, which puts her in the line of Jesus Christ and all the other stuff that we've, we've talked about earlier. And uh, then it says, okay, we're, we're going to go to verse 15. 15. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Go into the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourself up there three days, till the pursuers be returned, and afterwards may you go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of your oath, which you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into this land, we shall, you shall bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which you have, that you did let us down by, and you and your father and your mother and your brethren and your father's household home unto you. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head and we will be guiltless. And whoever shall be with you in the house, his blood shall be upon our heads if any hand touch upon him. And if you utter this our business, then we will be quit of your oath which you have made us swear. Alright, so they're going out. They're getting ready to be lowered out of a window in the wall. And most of us when we think about these walls, we don't think about windows being put in these tall walls, but these walls were sometimes 40, 50, 60 feet tall. And they would put wall, they'd put windows usually just big enough to shoot arrows out of, but occasionally you'd see one with a if it was high enough up that people couldn't get into it, you'd see a window in there. If you see these pictures of the, of the uh, windows. And so she lived on the wall and says she let them down by a, by a rope. And as they were going and ready to go, she gave them commandment. Go to the mountains. Don't go to the river. You know, I sent the enemy that way. I've sent your enemy that way. You go the opposite way. Go away from the river. Go up into the mountains and hide for three days and then when they're done searching for you you can go back now this is a picture of death and resurrection in, in the Old Testament they're gone for three days Jesus was in the grave for three days and then they are resurrected they are dead back at the camp they're gonna say what happened to my spies they weren't supposed to be gone this long how long does it take to go check out Jericho and come back they're gone for three days there's a death and resurrection picture of the gospel of Christ in here. 
And there's more, we're going to see a lot more as we go through this story. This story is just full of the gospel of Christ in it. And so she sends them away, and they tell her, as they're getting ready to go down, you've made us this, we've made this promise, and we're going to be blameless. We're going to do it. But when we come in, if you don't have this scarlet rope, this scarlet thread hanging from your window, you're not keeping your part of the bargain. Now imagine this. You've got, you're on the wall outside, and you hang a rope outside your window. Red one, very, very bright. If I was the king in the garden, I would be asking, what do you got this rope hanging out your window for? You know, you're making it easy for the enemy to climb into your window. What, what are you doing? That's never asked, apparently. She gets the rope hanging out her window. Because it's very clear, she leaves this rope hanging out the window. Probably, but they were under attack. They weren't thinking anything was particular. They were thinking it was peculiar that the wall fell flat. Not, not that her part stayed up, but that the wall fell flat because walls don't fall flat. They fall in or they fall out. They don't fall flat. And that's what it's going to tell us that it did. It fell flat. Okay, she has this rope out there. It's a scarlet rope. And we've talked about this before. The way they made scarlet at that time is they took a particular worm, caterpillar worm, that when it was dried and crushed, it made a red dye. Now this worm is very interesting in the way that it protects and feeds its young. It climbs up a tree, lays its eggs, covers the eggs with its body, and dies. It then produces a red liquid that covers their dead eggs, and then when they are born, they eat that red material. Now catch what I just said. This worm goes up on a tree. What was Jesus crucified on? A cross or a tree. Shedding his blood. The red blood that covers all of our sins. And when we're born again, what do we consume for, as a Christian? The word of God, Jesus Christ himself. This is a beautiful picture. This particular, anytime you see the scarlet in the Old Testament, think the picture of Jesus dying on the cross and feeding us with his own flesh and blood. It's a very powerful picture that they bring out all through this. We brought this out many times. Scarlet, and the way they got that scarlet dye was from something that gave its life to produce life in the long run just as Jesus does. He gave his life to produce life. All these little pictures we're seeing, and I just want to bring them out because there's a lot of little pictures symbolizing Jesus. Just as, as we went through the first five books, there's all kinds of pictures of Jesus. All right, so it says, if you don't have the scarlet thread out your window, your home's not protected. He goes, and you shall bring your father, your mother, your brethren, and all your father's household into your home with you. So you, you've got permission, whoever you bring in. And they literally said family, but she actually had said in all that they possess. So we might end up with cousins. And they kind of opened it up, the idea that it might be for cousins. You know, it's, uh, but he says, but if anybody goes out of your house, they'll be dead. This also should sound familiar to us. 
When they left Egypt, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, the Passover. Kill the Passover lamb, mark the doors with the blood on the sides, the top, and the bottom, making a cross. And if anybody leaves the, especially any firstborn, leaves the house, they will die. Rahab, if they stay in your house, they're protected. Come out of your house, they're dead. Because they're no longer being protected by being where they are. How many times do we as Christians get out of where we're supposed to be? Where's, where are we supposed to be? In Christ. And how many times do we get outside of Christ saying, I think I can handle this battle, God. It's a small battle. I can, I can deal with this battle as we get beat up really bad by the enemy. And then we come crawling back in and say, uh, let me back in. I couldn't handle this battle. Now, you were right. You couldn't handle this battle, but you thought you could, so I'll let you go learn your lesson. And so many times we are so slow at learning. We keep going back out of Christ to try to fight the battle on our own and say, God, look, I'm strong. I can do this. And God's saying, no, I'm strong. You're weak. Just stay in hiding. And this is what we've been studying in the book of Psalm. God is our defense. He's our fortress. He's our strong tower. He's our buckler. He's our shield. He's, our, he's, our for, you know, he's, our, he's everything for us. Hide in him. Paul in Ephesians says, put on the whole armor of God. What is every piece of the armor? Jesus Christ. He is uh, the word of God. He is our righteousness. He is truth. He is, he is every part of the word of God is Jesus Christ. So he's again, in the New Testament, we say, put on Christ. <laughs> And stay in Christ and be protected. Don't have the battles that go on when we get outside of Christ. And the safest place for us is to be in Christ. The strongest place for us is to be in Christ. We want to be in Christ all the time because that is where we're protected. If we get out of him, we're going to face trials and tribulations that we should not be facing. In Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I walk through this valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He could have just as easily said, I am in you. You're my protector. You're my shepherd. And the shepherd protects the sheep from everything. The shepherd goes before the sheep, clears the way of any uh, obstacles, makes sure that it's safe for the sheep to follow, and then calls them to follow. Jesus is the true shepherd. He keeps us. He guards the way. And when he allows us to go through things, he is our strength. He is our protector. And he is our guide in this. And then if you utter a word, if you utter, if you speak any word of what's going to happen, we will be quit or blameless of your oath. It'll be over with. It'll be gone. If you tell anybody what we're doing and we're coming... You're telling people why your family is gathered up in your, in your house, then we are guiltless. You, you, they, will, they will die. This is, they're making quite an agreement, and I, I'm really amazed by the agreement they make because they have no authority to do this. They're, not, they're just two soldiers gone out to spy out the land, and they're, they're making a full agreement. And she says back to them, according to your words, be it so, and she sent them away, and she departed. And she bound the scarlet line in the window. Now, I don't know how much of the line she drove, you know, dropped out the window. I don't know if she just you know, made it an X in the window. So X marks the spot with the golden, with the, with the scar, scarlet thread. But we are taught the scarlet thread of grace. God's grace, his mercy. 
Now, if you ever heard that term, this is what they're talking about. This scarlet thread that leads all the way to the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. All the way through the temple, all the way through his righteous judgments and his coming out and doing redemption for the people. All the times Israel sins and God comes along and redeems them. Over and over again, he redeems them. Over and over again, he, he, set, he, he buys them back. Even though they deserve to be totally destroyed. All through the book of Judges, they do what's right in their own eyes. They get judged and God buys them back. He sends a judge to, to redeem them. All through the kings, they keep going off into sinful pursuits. And he keeps being patient with them. Up until about 450, 500 years later when he says, Fine, I have had enough. You're going into captivity. And it's going to be a long captivity. And we see the faithfulness of God. God made a promise to the Israelites. This is your land. Why is it your land? Because I told Abraham everywhere his foot touched, it was his. Not because you've been good. Not because you've been obedient. Because they hadn't been. Okay. Every time they turned around, they murmured and complained and griped. And God, you're not doing enough for us. Well, we, we do this manna, we don't like this manna. We want, we want other stuff. And God gives them quail. And then they start eating the quail without even, without even getting it cooked and everything. And God sends judgment on them. You know, he sends punishment after punishment on them because of their sins. And yet he doesn't destroy them. The only time he threatens to destroy them is when Moses comes to their defense and says, God, you can't do that. That will ruin your testimony. The Egyptians will hear about it. The people will hear about it, that you, and they'll say that you weren't strong enough to bring them into what you promised them. You know, now, God knew that he was going to defend them. Moses was probably thinking, about time we get rid of these people. I'm tired of them myself, God. God did it at just the right time for Moses to be ready to defend. No, God, you can't. Your testimony, God, would be ruined if you destroy these people. Your honor. People will say that you weren't strong enough to do what you said. And God allowed them to come into the promised land. Why? Because he promised it to Abraham. That's the only reason they get the land. Why do they have the land today? Because God promised it to Abraham. Not because they deserved it. Not because they're good. Not because of anything special about them. Because of his grace, he promised it to Abraham. And they have their land. So we see this. And it says... And they went and came into the mountains and abode there for three days until the pursuers had returned and the pursuers brought, sought them throughout all the way and, and they found him not. So the pursuers went the direction that made sense. Okay? The spies have left our city. It makes sense that they're going to go to the river and try to cross the river and go back across the river to where their camp is. To go to the mountain, to go west instead of east made no sense to them. Which is why Rahab sent them west. Go west, young man. <laughs> uh, go, go west, hide for three days, and then you can come back east to, 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 to your people. And they hide the three days. While these guys are scouring the land, they've they got to be here someplace. You know, they, they've got to be here someplace. It makes sense that they're going this way. And they can't find them in three days, and they come back to the, come back to the city. And then it says on verse 23, So the men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came unto Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all the things that befell them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered our hand, into our hands all this land. 
For even the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. What a difference from the first time spies come in. We have 100% of them saying, it's our land, we're going to win. And before, you had two saying, it's our land, we're going to win. Now, if you remember back 40 years earlier, Joshua and Caleb go, you know, the 10 spies are saying, you know, it's a, it's a really good land, but it's a terrible land. It's got giants in the land. We look, like grass, we look like grasshoppers to them, and that's how they see us. And we talked a long time about that. Never assign motive to somebody, because if they had understood how the giants saw them, they would never have been afraid of the giants. Because it was fresh in their mind then that God had brought them over the Jordan, over the Red Sea. And it destroyed Egypt. It was fresh in their minds. Uh, because Egypt was the number one power at that time. You've got to understand, Egypt was the empire at that time when God destroyed them. This is one of the places where their dynasty changed because they became so weak that the Hyssops came in out of the north, took over the dynasty, and changed the dynasty in Egypt. We see a huge change why? Because their army had been destroyed. Their economy had been destroyed. And the people in the Canaan understood <laughs> this people, we're afraid of these people. And yet the spy said, uh, you know, we look terrible. You know, they're not afraid of us. We're grasshoppers. They, they can just step on us if they only knew how they were seeing. Joshua and Caleb go in. God's able to give us this land because he's the one that's been winning the victories anyway. He killed, he, he destroyed Egypt. He can, he can take these guys out. And you remember what they were going to do to Caleb and Joshua? They were going to stone them. They were going to stone Caleb and Joshua because they said that God can give us this land, which is why they're the only ones going in 40 years later. But these men come and they, give, they tell Joshua everything that's happened, everything they heard from Rahab. Can you imagine how blessed Joshua is. Now, he may have been asking the same question, well, what were you doing in a harlot's house? But he didn't, you know, doesn't record that. <laughs> you know, but he hears, oh, the people are afraid of us. All right, I knew God would give them to us 41 years ago. I knew God would have done it 40 years ago, but now he's going to do it because they are still afraid of us. And now we know that they're afraid of us. I can picture Joshua telling, making sure, all right, you guys tell everybody you tell the whole camp this story. I want everybody to know that the people are afraid of us. I want no fear from our people. You just tell everybody. You make sure everybody knows they're afraid of us. It's, it's very possible that, it, it, that 41 years of, of repetition had changed the 100-foot the you know, wall or whatever it was to three or 400 feet or 1,000 feet. You know, who knows what, what they had you know, uh, in, their, in, their, in their story by the time it got told over and over again. And it says, they came in and says, God has given us this land because the people are afraid of us. They have no courage. And, you know, the greatest thing you want to do, if you're going to go into a fight, you want to know that your enemy does not have courage. This is why bullies are so successful usually, because they're pretty sure that the people they're picking on do not have the courage to stand up against them. 
Because usually when they come back and they're courageous, the bullies will usually back down. Because they don't want to fight somebody who's got courage. And here they're saying, you know, <laughs> Joshua, we got them. They're scared to death. They are not ready to fight. These guys are going to stand in their little, their little uh, walled cities and they're going to think they're going to be protected. But God can give us those as well. God is going to give us everything. And I can, you can picture Joshua. About time somebody comes back with the right words. You know, Joshua, you know, Caleb and I gave them the same testimony. About time that, the, that you guys come back with the right words. We're going to take these guys and we're going to destroy them as we should have done 40 years ago. And I can picture Joshua saying, you know, this is way, God has taken a long time, but we're finally going to get the land that we're supposed to get. Still now, people are afraid of Israel. There's a lot of people who are afraid of Israel. There's a lot of them that aren't afraid of Israel, but because, you know, God is still doing miraculous things for Israel. The Six-Day War had many miraculous things that happened to them. Entire divisions surrendering to two people because they didn't see just two people. They saw an entire army behind them. Bombs falling out of the air, planes falling out of the air, missiles falling out of the air. Uh, you know, missile, having locks on the Israel airplanes and not having them be, fall out of the air when they shoot them. Uh, all kinds of miraculous things that God did because it's his people defending the country that he has given them. And you think about this, the last great battle will be when the whole world goes to attack Israel. 100 million soldiers going against Israel and they lose because God comes along and speaks a word and they die. Just speaks a word. What a quick battle. Jesus comes, you're all dead. 100 million soldiers die instantly. Amazing, amazing, and that's what's coming. You know, and it's amazing to think about what God has done for us and what he can do for us and how much he cares for us and how much his testimony will stand for us. And so we want to just keep in mind, what can God do for us if we're hiding in him? Anything and everything. What can God bless you with? Anything and everything. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will ask what you want in his name and it will be done to you. Now remember, the key to that word is in his name. What glorifies him? What builds him up? You know, it isn't God give me a million dollars in Jesus' name. That does not build him up. Now if you go, God give me a million dollars because we need to build this ministry then you probably get the million dollars you need to build that ministry and honor God. And more probably. But if it's just, God, give me a million dollars because I want to live happy the rest of my, you know, live, live comfortably the rest of my life, you're not going to get that prayer answered because that is not in the name of Christ. Even if you say, in the name of Jesus, that's not in his name in the authority and power of it. <laughs> well, this is true too, Money does not make people happy as everybody who gets money finds out. If your money, if you think money is going to make you happy, if you think fame is going to make you happy, if you think anything is going to make you happy outside of God, you're, you're deceiving yourself. And, that's, and we've talked many times about it. How many su sports superstars, uh, actors, actresses, singers get to the top, of the top of the charts? They've got millions of dollars. They've got the house. They've got the cars. They've got people following them. They, they can have anything they want and they're not happy. And how do we know they're not happy? Number one, many of them tell us. Number two, 
their drug use and their alcohol use and, and all of that tells us they're not happy. They didn't find what they wanted to find in stuff. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes tells us stuff is not going to do it. And here's the richest man of the world saying riches are never going to make you happy. Here's a man with a thousand women at his disposal. Women aren't going to make you happy. You know, uh, here's a man that says, I've got all these special uh, good works that I'm doing to make things life better for people. I'm not any happier. He goes, I've gotten all the alcohol and I can find and I'm not happy. I'm getting all the drugs I can find. I'm not happy. Read the book of Ecclesiastes and he's going, he goes right down the list. Everything that people think will make them happy, he says, is vanity and worthless. It does not make you happy. It isn't until he comes back to God that he finds happiness. And he says, oh, this is what I needed. This is where happiness is at. This is where joy and contentment comes. All right, we're going to close here. Can't buy happiness. Can't buy happiness. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go before us today. Help us to be strong and courageous in our walk with you. Show us what you would have us to do and give us the courage to say the things you want us to say, to do the things you want us to do, and to show forth your love and your precious power. In your son's name, amen.